Accelerating to a better future, an insight into innovation at Imperial. Hello and welcome to this edition of Accelerating to a Better Future with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Richard Templer. Happy New Year, Richard. How are you? Did you make any New Year's resolutions? Um, I, uh, this year I made no New Year's resolutions because I thought the world was in such chaos. I was at any point. So I think the only resolution I've got is to keep my head above water and to keep vaguely sane for 2021. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and keep smiling. Did well. you make a resolution? I did actually. Well, I made lots, but I never keep them. But I did make one actually, which is kind of pertinent to today, partly at the behest of my younger daughter, and that was to reduce packaging coming into the house, especially around foodstuffs. So, so you, you, you're going to unwrap everything and just just <laughs> chuck it out to the street? No, <laughs> we are we are there at the farmers market. We're down at our local zero waste store, Zilch, which is amazing. We go with our little jars. Oh. And, you know, we're working really, really hard to, to, to cut the packaging out of the system. And I have to say, it's really difficult, really <laughs> difficult. Nigh on impossible if you shop in a supermarket, I think, because most food stuff comes in some form of packaging, albeit some of it's recyclable. Some of it purports to be recyclable and isn't. Some of that plastic stuff that says you can recycle me and then you find you can only do it in one place in the world and you have yep. to travel hundreds of miles in order to recycle it, which kind of defeats the object of the exercise. But it's it, it's such a massive subject, this, isn't it? And I mean, throughout these podcasts, we've talked to all sorts of people about various parts of the food chain, about food manufacture, food production, packaging. And, and I'm really pleased that we managed to squeeze in this extra New Year podcast and you've persuaded a couple of your colleagues to come along and join us to discuss the impact on the climate associated with the food chain, manufacturing and packaging in particular, and how that fits into the wider food system. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I should say that you use the word colleagues, and I have to be really honest, they're mates. <laughs> they, they are, they are, they, they are. They can be both. I know, I know. Thank God he's They're going to talk enough when we let them rip on all this. Uh, just, just to say that these two really are world experts on this stuff. And in fact, since we, at the very beginning of all this, we talked about the genesis of how how the climate kick happened and how the accelerator happened. In fact, it was working with Richard and Jem, who you're going to introduce in a second, that I really got into climate change. And in some ways, they they changed my career because I was quite happily doing some, you know, the normal academic pottering around, staring at blue skies and doing what I wanted to do. And then they kind of alerted me to the fact that you could do stuff about climate change and that it might be a worthwhile thing uh, for me to do so maybe I should shut up and let you get on and introduce these two um, and, and get on with this conversation which I'm oh, looking no, forward I mean, to. that's it's fantastic actually and it isn't it wonderful when we're inspired by our colleagues and they then become our friends um, yeah. and and if the odd conversation about motorbikes sneaks into this podcast I am not responsible I'm putting a disclaimer out now <laughs> Um, so yes, so our guest today, we're delighted to be joined by Richard Murphy, who's a Professor of Life Cycle Assessment at the Centre for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Surrey. And prior to that, he was a reader in plant scientists at Imperial. Richard, hello and welcome. It's going to get very confusing, so I might have to call you Richard M, if that's okay. That would be absolutely fine. And our second guest, Jeremy Woods, is a reader in sustainable development at Imperial College London, where he works on the interplay between development, land use and the sustainable use of natural resources. 
Gemma, that's quite a mouthful, but I'm sure you're going to tell us a lot more about that. So hello and welcome to the podcast and thanks for coming. Thanks. Thanks to, to all of you. So we've said that this is a pretty huge subject and I know that we're only going to be able to touch on some of it today and I suspect that there'll be at least one more podcast coming out of our conversation. But I wondered if we could start with some contextual stuff. So Jem, could I ask you maybe to give us an overview for the benefit of listeners? What do we mean when we talk about food systems? It's interesting. I've just come off a conversation with Jerome Lamb, who's a professor in mathematics. And last month we had the launch or the the Mackay 2050 calculator was launched, which um, uh, will mean something to to others. And that's a a, a model targeted at, at policymakers to help them understand what options they have available to them. We call them levers, what levers they can pull that will have a material effect on climate change, climate mitigation, and in what timescale that, that that might happen. And I was talking with Jerome and he was basically challenging me and saying, you know, I take my hat off to people who are as brave as you for trying to model these kinds of systems when the uncertainty is so dominant. So you you end up with uh, formulating opinions and formulating tools that propagate uncertainty. And so you don't know what the outcomes are going to be. And my response to him, uh, which I promise is relevant to this podcast, my response to him was actually... I don't see it as bravery. What we're trying to do is help those people who have to make decisions, make the decisions from greater degree of a science basis, from an evidence basis. And when you talk about things like the food web and the food system, and uh, and then presumably we'll get on to, to packaging and waste, there we're talking about highly complex, highly interconnected systems of human activity and biological action that come together to deliver a specific outcome. And in that case, in in the food web, it's to deliver food and nutrition to to humanity. But it's, it's the connections, it's the networks and the connections that lend to the the uncertainty and understanding if you do one thing then that will cause a whole set of chain reactions and end up having you know an impact that we hadn't thought about or hopefully uh, impacts that we have thought about but then a whole series of knock-on effects and impacts that that we're going to find very difficult to to understand and so um, we talked about uh, cows milk um, any food stuff you know, can be produced from very long international supply chains, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, where you have to account for how the crop was produced, where it was produced, what were the impacts of that production, how was it harvested, how was it stored, converted, shipped, packaged, and produced and delivered to us as the consumers, and when and why do we want it, what, 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 what good does it do us, having those specific those specific outcomes. So the the food web is a is a term that's set up really to say it's not a single supply chain. It's really a a, a huge set of massively interconnected systems right that stretch right around the globe. That must make it almost impossible for the average consumer like me who's in the supermarket trying to make an ethical choice between a one packaged item and another packaged item to have any sense of how I make that decision because I can't. How would I possibly track back? the carbon footprint, the environmental impact of, of the food item I'm buying. I mean, I guess if it's a locally grown, locally sourced thing like an apple, I can probably just about manage that. But if it's anything remotely more complex or something that's 
that's made of other ingredients, so like a ready meal or something, it's an almost impossible task. Oh, well, that's, that's exactly the point of complexity when I ask Richard Murphy the question and say, uh, well, this is a really difficult one, Richard, can you answer it? No, what, 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 you, as a, you as an individual consumer shouldn't really need to do all the calculations and have the detailed knowledge of where your food stuff has come from. What you should be able to rely on is that the information presented to you covers the things that you want and need to know. And I think supermarkets in particular have hidden behind uh, the complexity of these systems. And actually, when we came together, we, we were talking about um, biofuels and bioenergy policy, um, at, at sort of the outset of all of us coming together. And then again, the in this case, the oil majors and the, and the fuel distributors sort of hid behind this, the, the, the point that you're making, that it's far too complex for us when we fill up our our fuel tank or when we select our apple to really need to know all of that information. And that's not right. It, it's incumbent on the systems providing the things that we consume. It's incumbent on them to, to bite the bullet and say, right, we need to understand how to deliver lower impact, more sustainable products to our consumers. I think you asked a question that's really relevant because it is incredibly difficult to generalize. And what everyone, let's say the consumer, wants is a kind of general answer, sort of very quick summary that will say, yes, you know, take this, don't take that one. And actually, I think that's really difficult to do. It is a complex case, as, as Gems said, but actually there's also a lot of interesting information that shows that in some ways we're actually quite good at managing recovery and recycling of packaging materials. And um, we got to be even very careful with the term waste because there's an implication of waste that it's something fundamentally that people think ends up in landfill, I think. And actually, mostly it doesn't, in fact, in the UK and in, in large parts of the world, it doesn't. So it doesn't make it any easier when you're making your personal choices in the supermarket or, or the alternative stores, or as you've said earlier, the farmer's markets or so on. And, and people have to figure out their own rules in a way. I think what you, what you make, what you regard as particularly important to you when you're making your choices. Jem's absolutely right in terms of presenting the information. I think the supermarkets and in fact, the entire food supply system has got a responsibility to, to make that accessible to those who, who are going to want to make informed choices about it. Packaging, for example, is such an emotive issue, isn't it? Well, I, I, think, I think Richard M, this is Richard yeah. T speaking, um, that, that it's a very interesting observation when you see the way that the food industry in Toto talks about the burden of doing these things. And I always, I always listen to that. I think, why don't you just invert that and talk about... Yeah. I have an additional value and the consumer will wish to buy my products because I provide them with transparent and accurate information about the food that I give them. And they do it in many ways already, right? It's been mandated through regulations that we don't eat, you know, um, meat that's foul and that's gone off. And you know, so this is just another way of, of saying, give people enough information that they, they can make good decisions. Um, 
I'd also add, Amanda, there's, there's, there's another really interesting dimension to all of this, because obviously the, the three of us are motivated by trying to improve the, the, the carbon footprint of what we eat and make it environmentally benign and, and a variety of things which are all to do with the natural world. But this, the food chain also impinges on, on all sorts of things to do with social equity. And sometimes, you know, our choice of, well, I'm not going to go and get any Kenyan beans anymore because they've got air miles on them. You know, ultimately, that, that also has an impact, an impact which is a negative impact because it stops people in Kenya being employed, selling high value agricultural products to um, to, to Britain and to other parts of the world. And, and these are all decisions. These are all things we have to, as humans, way up we have to make decisions about which bits of this matter to us because if we simplified everything down to a single number it's not going to work there are too many different factors that, that we need to be aware of and make need to make decisions on ourselves we need information that, though yeah i was going to say a lot of that's predicated on getting information isn't it i mean and the whole you know gem's point about you know the complexity of the web and presumably the minute you start to drill down into some of those supply chains they're multi-layered you know you may have hundreds of different sources of supply for one product that's ending up on the shelves and, and actually having access to that information i'm not going to stand there in the supermarket and read you know two and a half pages on the back of the pack that tells me where everything in the supply chain where it's come from and the provenance but if i've got some of the information and if i can feel that i'm trusting the information that i'm being told i'm able to make a more informed decision and i'm able to weigh up my ethical considerations about seasonality and air miles and food miles against what I know is actually fair trade and, and the requirement of a country to be able to export its goods to, to keep for people to stay alive. So I've, I've got choices, but mm. it's how you how you glean that information and how you share it that's that's really complicated. It's not just a food web. It's a it's a web of of political power systems and, and knowledge systems that, that sits behind it. And, you know, the, the bigger organisations are generally better at navigating that and indeed turning the complexity of those situations into income into revenue and and and, and profit so there there is that dimension as well and then just just sitting there listening it it's very easy to get a distorted perspective on various specific points or 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 you know to generate opinions that that may not matter too much you know it probably doesn't matter in terms of meeting net zero targets, how much coffee we drink and where that's produced. It, it matters for, for a whole set of other reasons and it matters um, in ways that, that we can help signpost what's a better thing to do than, than, than a worse thing to do. But then you've got this web of interconnected agendas sitting on, on top of it. So you've mentioned food miles. There's a huge localism agenda that sits alongside vegetarianism, veganism. And certainly from my perspective, you know, Richard T, you talked about coffee and the value that can be generated. There's all kinds of really high value cash crops that can really lead to, to strong investment in local areas in, in, in developing countries or indeed drive the reverse. So, you know, you can have, have really bad um, political outcomes. But then you've got things like packaging sitting on top of it. So you've got globalism in the food industry 
the big argument there with with the food industry saying we need packaging in order to maintain the health and safety of the of the food products you've got issues to do with comparative advantage of producing something in one place because the climate conditions the the local conditions really favor the production of that particular food product against the the transport and the shipping and you know i i think Richard M and, and I would say that often if your main metric of understanding is greenhouse gas emissions or climate impact, then people often mistake the miles part, the food miles part, and think that it's got a much bigger impact than it really does on the food system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's just a huge array of issues. And now I'm thinking about, you know, with with this particular COVID-related Christmas, the amount of things that we have in presence and things that we've had delivered to our door that are going around. And now, of course, they're all coming in cardboard packaging. You know, where's that cardboard coming from? Who's producing the trees that may go into making that cardboard? How does that impact on the recycling industry? You know, how's that impact on the whole carbon cycle of the carbon going into the biomass that's going into the cardboard, going into the food, etc.? Well, actually, paper and card, Jim, has the highest recycling rate of almost any material. It's about 80% in the UK, and uh, I think 70% of the furnish for UK paper mills is, is actually recycled fibre. It's, it's our major feedstock. So it's, it, there is quite a success story in some of this. I mean, obviously, fibres can only be recycled a number of times, perhaps five or six times before they're degraded so much that they... Um, they can't be anymore, but even then you can anaerobically digest the, the residue. So it, that's quite a good one. I mean, UK households recycle about 45%. That's our current recycling waste of, of household-generated um, waste. It's about the same as plastic. Richard, you've mentioned something that I think is quite important and interesting to listeners, and that's the wood products that lead to paper and cardboard is a really good example. Because relatively simple compared to some of the other things that we could talk about so do you want to just actually talk about how many times you said you could you recycle mm-hmm. reuse really? about five to six times and then you said then after that oh, we can anaerobically digest do, do you want to just actually talk that through what does it mean to, what, why can you only reuse it five to six times and what is this anaerobic digestion thing okay well i mean the quality of, of paper and cardboard card is, is really derived from the, the length of the fibers, the typically wood fibers that, that are beaten, you know, are, are dissolved out of the solid wood and then reformed to make the sheets of paper or the corrugated board or whatever it is. And that, that's generally speaking done thermomechanically with some sort of um, chemical additions as well. And the chemicals are largely recycled in those systems uh, as well because they're valuable. Um, and mm-hmm. water, you know, people are also concerned about the consumption of water or the discharge of water from pulp and paper mills has been drastically reduced um, in recent years. Um, the reason that you can only recycle a piece of paper, as it were, four or five times is because each time you, you reprocess it, you, you, you dissolve it again back into pulp and then lay the sheets out, the fibres get a bit shorter and some of the chemical nature is changed. So after a few cycles... They, they become unfit for making good, decent quality paper or card out of. Um, but they're still organic matter, of course, and, and you know, as, as you and, and Jem and I know and other colleagues we've worked on, how can you take you know, some of the valuable chemicals out of those sorts of um, organic materials, the carbohydrates, possibly some of the lignin and the hemicelluloses, and you can turn them into bioenergy or, or even as other sorts of feedstock. 
So there are, there are really interesting ways of, of, if you like, handling our materials and, and utilizing them better than we have done in previous times, let's say. And that, that is some cause, I think, for, for reasonable optimism. So the, the, the improvements you've talked about, are, are they actually improvements that have happened over the last decade? Oh, yeah. I, I have to be honest, I wasn't aware of this. And this is yeah, the yeah. Very so much so. I mean, well, one, and also we, we obviously have to add some fresh wood fibre when, when making mm-hmm. paper or card out of recycled material generally. Well, as I said, about 70% of the furniture is recycled, which means about 30% of the material we put into the paper isn't. It's new fibre coming um, primarily from sustainably managed forests, quite a lot from Scandinavia and so on. The European forest estate is actually increasing in, in land area, not decreasing. Um, and um, so as long as those forests are sustainably managed, um, there is an opportunity to make continue to make use of these sorts of recovered and, re- and, and naturally renewable fibres. Um, and also, you know, we don't cut whole forests down to make paper out of perfect. It's it's interesting, you know, because we, Richard, we we had we had another one of our startups, one of our younger ones, um, called mm. Hydrocotton, who are mm. um, who've created a system for growing um, cotton with only ten percent of the water consumption and none of the pesticides and all the rest of it. Um, they were on the Look East News just last night. Oh, fantastic! Really? Yeah. Oh, really? So so, nice. so we got there first. So yeah. so that. Well, good on them. Yeah. Their their product, um, the, the the cotton they've been growing, um, is is at the high high value end because the mm. fibers are very long. I'm yeah. presuming that the same law, let's call it Murphy's law, <laughs> of of recycling means that if you take any of the fibers, so that would include clothing, and we recycle them, that yeah. eventually that it will it will it will not be recycled anymore because the fiber lengths get too short is that right is there a kind of general rule about fibrous materials being recycled only a limited number of times before they become unusable it's a good point richard it's a feature of of most nat pretty much all natural fibers actually that they they do interestingly for synthetic fibers um uh you know you can take them down back down to chemical recycling and, yep. uh, and then build up the fiber again from um, small molecules. But for most natural fibers, yes, they would. Cotton is a fabulous fiber. It's got this wonderful natural twist to it and due to the way the cellulose spirals around the cells. And that's how it can be um, spun into yarn and things like that so so well. I mean, it's great to hear that there's, there's you know, innovative ways of, of cultivating these things that we've cultivated for centuries yeah. with, with reduced mm-hmm. water and so on. I know cardboard's a good news story and paper, but but yeah, what about plastic? Because we were talking a little bit about packaging, yeah. weren't we? And we were talking about food packaging, <laughs> and and I just have to kind of think about the plastic cucumber thing, yep, you know. Exactly. And it drives me mad that my supermarket wraps my cucumber in plastic. I'm told it's because it preserves its shelf life, and therefore we have less food waste, and the cucumber will last longer, both on the shelf and then in my fridge. And so the benefit is that you know we're not wasting the food product. But that plastic is horrible, pernicious, nasty stuff. I can't even use it to, to, you know, I can't repurpose it for other things such as useful poop bags. You know, there's nothing I can do with the plastic that goes around the cucumber. What, what's the alternative there? I mean, is there a, A, do we need it? And if we don't, if we do need it, is there a better natural alternative to the to the plastic that we get around our foodstuffs? Shall, shall I take this? Because I, I think it, you've 
hit the nail on the head in the sense um, that these thin film plastics, and they're perhaps not, it's not so much the difficulty in recycling them. It's a serious economic problem, actually, that if you, if you were, you know, if you could put thin film plastic, of which, you know, we do get a fair bit when we buy our food from the usual types of outlets, um, there's no particular technical reason why that plastic cannot be sort of recollected, sorted, and could be reprocessed into plastic again, into the same polymer, the same plastic that it was. The economics really don't favor it because, you know, it's, it's very bulky, um, it's often contaminated, it needs washing. It's almost a societal problem, in my view, that if, if we say, look, we're, we're just not prepared to have this stuff and throw it away uh, at the end of its first single use, um, we could actually deal with it, I'm sure, in a recycling sense. I mean, some of it will go to incineration with energy recovery and will generate things like electricity and perhaps heat for other uses but you know largely it's based on fossil fuels and so when you burn it of course uh, even if you get some electricity back from it it's still um, emitting fossil co2 if you made it out of biomass for example as some companies can do so you can make some of our typical plastics using biomass as resources and if you do incinerate at the end of life of its use uh, back to um, um, so you release the co2 from it again but capture some energy and um, that will be much more carbon neutral um, than it would be using fossil materials to make the plastics from. And could we have it as biodegradable? I mean, is that possible? I mean, are, is the biodegradable compostable plastic bag you find in so many shops now mm. for your loose produce really, truly a biodegradable compostable item? Or is it, that, is it just the thing we all want to hear so we go on using them? Well, I'm so glad you've asked me that question because the answer is it just depends. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, typical academic response. <laughs> well, it's all right. Funnily enough, Gem and I did actually talk about this as we were yeah, yeah. we were putting in our assiduous hours of preparation for this podcast. Um, no, the, the reason I say that um, slightly facetiously is because anything that's labelled as biodegradable as a plastic is biodegradable. But very often, what that really means is it's biodegradable under very controlled conditions, typically a high temperature composting, or possibly an anaerobic digestion system. It is not the same as placing something like this into your garden compost. But that's what they tell us to do with it. They say well, put it into it your can. food, this is the problem. food compost it, bin yeah. that we all duly have ah. at the end of our units. Yep. We stick it into our biodegradable liner, lined food compostable bin, thinking it will be composted somewhere along the line. But, but if it's taken that's away, is it taken away as part of your municipal waste collection? Yes, it's taken away as but a food is, that will in my food collection. Yeah, that'll go off to a high temperature composting system. So it will biodegrade. That's that's my view. Okay. If you take the same plastic bag and go and sort of pop it into the compost heap, perhaps in your garden, or just leave it in your um, food waste bin that you haven't carried out for about three or four weeks, um, not a lot will probably happen to it, to be honest. And uh, I've done various experiments with this and you know it's quite it's quite alarming sometimes how some of these so-called biodegradable well they are biodegradable but under the particular mm. circumstances of the tests and the, the if you like the approvals given to, to label them biodegradable there, there are some labels for home compostable plastics and those should break down in your own domestic low temperature composting heap in your garden or you know side of your Okay. Okay. Another really nerdy question. Presumably, though, the sticky label that you've printed out when you've weighed your produce and stuck on the outside of that biodegradable compostable bag 
is mm. not itself biodegradable or compostable because it's got ink on and sticky stuff. Well, that just depends, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there one? Some of them seen... are, but yeah. not. No, okay, okay. <laughs> you, you can have fully biodegradable uh, glue adhesives, labels. and. Um, but they're not as standard in most of our UK food retailers and supermarkets are read, they? Read, read the label very carefully <laughs> I th- I th- I th- I think, amanda you're, you're you're touching on something that i think is actually very important i've mm. sort of been traveling through all of this and jem sort of uh, more than alluded to it at the beginning which is something to do with who is the steward of this this um this food chain this you know so that mm-hmm. when you are the recipient of this piece of food that all these other things, all these positive and negative things that are associated with receiving that piece of food are actually somebody's, somebody is reassuring you that the food chain, the people, the organizations involved with, with growing and finally delivering this thing to you have done their best that, you know, this is as environmentally benign as is possible. And I think the question of who is the steward, who who is the person who can reassure you of that, is is essentially, I think, is the most important question out there. And my, my, my feeling is that, that the natural, apart from the state, who already take a regulatory uh, stake in all of this, ultimately, it's the it's the market, it's the person that you buy this from that should be giving you that value, should be able to reassure you so that you don't have to do all of the, you know, the calculations, don't have to do all of the reassurance and all the rest of it. But ultimately, they won't do that for you unless you want it badly enough. And, you know, so that means that we all as individuals are, are rather responsible for this because we like cheap food and we like heaps of it. And there is a cost to that, you know, a cost of you like of our own ignorance. We don't really want to know anything about this. And we're going to have to want to know about this and insist that that what what we receive is actually as benign as it can possibly be. It will never, by the way, the other thing I thought that I'd like to say is that you can't make things without some spillover there's a there's a there's a rule of thermodynamics called the second law of thermodynamics <laughs> which which if you're a northerner says you can't get out without right you, you you produce food and there is there is going to be um some spillover and the job of the farmer and the job of, of the logistics people and the, the, all the people involved in the food chain should be to try and minimize the the negative spillovers but they will still be there it's just to do with minimizing things and we have to be adult and accept that you know that mm. being alive has consequences <laughs> yeah but but jem you would say that we do want to know wouldn't you i mean you know you talked about your lever the calculator lever and the fact that you're trying to change and influence policy that to me implies that that there's a demand and a desire for those things to change both politically and, and in the macro sense at policy level, but also because people want it. We wouldn't invest in this if people weren't interested in finding out more about the provenance and the, the, the sustainability of their food systems. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the only way the food industry, the food system is going to change is, well, actually, it's a bit of a luxury, but certainly in, in societies like ours, 
where consumers really do have power is when those when that consumer power is converged to focus on specific issues that's what drives real change you know and we, we were talking there about about um home compostability and um you know there's no way with the best will in the world we can know that when something has a label on it it's really going to compost under these conditions in those circumstances with the rights of the time and place and all that kind of stuff we have to have an element of trust when we see those things and the home compostable standard that's with the tum label mostly that i've seen you know it, it's under a certain standard and we have to trust that that, that that's what's going to happen and then so we're, we're talking about governance and the way that, that society organizes itself to deliver the things that matter to th that specific society. So who is it that, that matters? Who makes the choices? How do they do it? And then how do you, how do you marshal those things to, to get specific outcomes with the right kinds of knowledge? And that's a, you know, that is, a, a, again, a, a very complex, a, a very complex debate and, and discussion. I was thinking about Richard Murphy's point um, before about the recycling of cardboard. And, you know, one of the things that we look to is the multiple lives of carbon in, in organic materials and organic products. And that's really important for the overall carbon footprint, the carbon balance of, of those products. But it means knowing what is going to happen, to, not just to the cardboard that you get produced, but what's going to happen five or six lives down. You know, we, we used to talk glibly about end of life and understanding end of life. But this is this is like reincarnation, isn't it? And we would like that reincarnation cycle to go on for for as long as possible. And so, yeah, this is this is really about um, managing and assimilating knowledge to make it available and assimilatable to the people who need to know what they what they to provide the information to the people who want to know that specific outcome in ways that they can understand and know it. And then to help the systems, the, the, the delivery systems, the delivery mechanisms, uh, assemble them themselves in learning by doing type formats where they improve over time against the metrics that we, that we think are, are important. And here's the thing. It, it struck me and I was, I was looking into the, the latest numbers for paper recovery and card recovery and things. And I think one of the reasons you know, why it is done so well is because it can be done. You know, the receiving system is there. There's, it has a market value, actually, to, to the so it's bought. But also, people themselves were well aware that, you know, we generate paper as, as inverted commas, waste. You know, our daily newspaper, for example, I'm going back a few years, obviously, but, but that sort of thing and, and cardboard boxes and packaging. So we're, we're quite keenly aware of it, I think. And you, you raised the point about plastic packaging and the cucumber thing, you know, when people see it and they experience it and they then want something done about it, it's exactly as, as Jem was saying, you know, that does drive improved systems um, as long as, you know, it's made clear, if you like, to the systems, the providing systems, that that's what we want. And we're, we're not happy with um, waste. We're not happy with food waste. I mean, WWF have run excellent campaigns on this and a number of other organisations um, to, to try to, you know, we're keenly aware of it, aren't we? Or have become more so, I think, than we were um, well, 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 
I can remember when we were first setting up the the climate kick actually while we while we were trying to write the proposal and being with these two and a number of other close colleagues and and discussing things like this we came to some conclusions about what it was that people were looking for and i think we again we've sort of we've touched on on, on this people are not insensitive about a lot of these things in fact especially packaging food waste they're very sensitive to it and they have been for many decades it's not a new thing but but we do not make it easy for people mm. to mm. um you know to to do their bit and 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 richard has just talked about you know actually what why why is it that paper products have got better recycling records and so on it's i think it's because it's simple and one of the mm. principles I, I remember saying is we need to make things simple for people. So make it simple. Do it for me and make it simple. And the last one was make it sexy. Well, cardboard sexy, I'm not sure, but no doubt some designer somewhere could make uh, could figure that one out for us. And Murph, I don't want any remark. I know you're about to blurt something <laughs> horrendous out. <laughs> I think there you're right on. There are children listening to this recording. No man. <laughs> enough. Oh, enough. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah. I think I think you're right. It is it, it's easy. It's about making it easy, isn't it? Making it clear and making it easy. And 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 your point, Richard, about food waste. I mean, people are acutely aware of food waste now. I think. Mm. And and I was listening to something recently where someone was saying the way to get through this lockdown, whatever number lockdown we're on, was to try and find something positive before we had to look back. So rather than reflecting and saying the good that came out of the previous lockdown is X, let's try and find find new things before we start. But one of those things must be that we're much more aware of what we're doing, what we're eating, what we're buying, how we're shopping. If we're limited to going shopping once a week or twice a week now because we're not meant to be going out, we're more acutely aware of what's coming into our homes and what we're putting into our bodies. So there must be an, a, an upside here that people are aware of that. They're aware of food, they're aware of food waste, they're aware of food poverty and food insecurity. So I think the tide could be turning. Yeah. You know, Richard, it's 10 years since you since you set up the climate kick. You know, things are different now than they were 10 years ago, isn't there? There's a much higher level of awareness about this. Uh, uh, People are hungry, excuse the pun, <laughs> for better for better food systems and, and, and less packaging and more sustainable food in all its forms. I think we've returned to, to a, a condition of, of existence at the moment where the fundamentals of life are in our face. We're very aware you know, especially the first time around, like people were panicking about their loo roll and so on and so forth. Well, these are all, you know, pretty sort of simple, fundamental things and realising that they really, really matter. That's that's a, a first step on a, on, a, on a route to reconsidering the way that you live your life. And doing that may also provide the levers um, to put pressure on not just the food system, but other systems. We're talking about the food system now, on the food and the packaging systems that we use to just try and do a little bit better. And I'm really, I'm genuinely heartened that Richard Murphy has been able to tell us that actually things have been going on quietly and silently in the background that at least lead, lead one to feel that there is encouragement out there. People are thinking about this and are doing stuff, which is great. Mm. Yeah. And um, there's so much more to say. And I feel that we probably need to come back to the subject. And particularly, Jen, we'd really like to talk to you about the whole kind of food web and food insecurity, particularly in an international, international context. But for now, we probably ought to draw it to a close, really, for the sake of the listeners. So, so this bonus special issue. 
because I wanted to mention my favourite LCA newspaper article or a newspaper article that mentions LCA. Go on then, Jim. Tell us the LCA story. <laughs> so the LCA story, the, the title of the newspaper article was What is Driving Itchy Bums Around the Country? <laughs> 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 basically, it, it, it said that um, because we were all switching away from printing and having stuff, more things, emails, etc., everything being digital, that we weren't producing enough high-quality paper that was going into the recycling system. And so that long fibre that, that, that Richard Murphy was talking about earlier is the fibre that makes nice, soft toilet paper. But it's too expensive to use first for toilet paper. So you, the recycling paper was what was used. But because we weren't printing enough, we weren't generating enough of that. So the toilet paper was now being produced from second or third iteration, shorter fiber length um, paper, which made it much more itchy in use. <laughs> there you go. There you go, man. And on that edifying you. note. <laughs> he says this was an LCA paper, but really it's just personal experience. Yes. <laughs> Enough, enough scrapping, gentlemen. <laughs> it, it's always good to, to raise the tone at the end, there, isn't yes, it? Scatology, <laughs> scatology at the end of the. Here's, here's a bit of information. Then, does anyone know what year the the Andrex um, soft tissue company was um, started making this uh, soft soft loop paper, soft paper? No, absolutely no idea. Are you going to tell us? Do you know where? Uh, a, a US. 1942 in Walthamstow. Walthamstow. <laughs> The puppy's not good old Walthamstow. Before that, it was was Bronco and Isal. Oh, God. I remember. Euphemistically known as Shinies. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't let's go there. Please, please don't let's go there. Enough of this. Enough. I'm going to pull this. Okay, I'm resorting to calling time here. Um, So I'm just going to say a huge thank you. I think I mean this, to Richard Murphy and Jeremy Jem Woods for joining us. And to you, as always, Richard um, Templer, for being co-host on this podcast. And you can catch more episodes, if you can bear it, of the Accelerating to a Better Future podcast, either on your podcast app or on the Grantham Institute website. Thanks, too, to our producer, um, Jim Hayward, who has to edit this lot. So a huge thank you to, to you all. And it's been really interesting and fascinating and, I have to say, very amusing. So thank you for listening and goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. 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 signing off. Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Our thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the team at Imperial College London.